to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Erringer Helbling. Aaron is currently the Director of Operations at Hawkeye 360, a radio frequency-based geoanalytics company. Previously, she worked at SpaceX and is a U.S. Army veteran. During her active duty service, she led tactical units, served as a military social aide to President Obama and President Trump, and supported the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency in both the Analysis and Technology Directorates. She is currently an Army Reservist at the Defense Innovation Unit and co-founded a 501c3 organization that serves women veterans. Erin, hi! It's so great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Megan. It's great to chat with you and be here. I'm just so excited. Well, I'm excited too. I hope we have some fun. So I'd like to kick us off with asking you to tell us a little bit about how you found your way into the intelligence community. What did your journey look like? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking about that. I will say that I never thought I would be here today. I never really thought I would be in the intelligence community, but here I am and I absolutely love it. I think it all really started for me when I was on a soccer field playing soccer and the West Point soccer coach saw me and recruited me to go to West Point. And it's kind of funny because my father went to West Point and being a teenager, not thinking about anything Uh, national security related, more focused on soccer and school and friends. I was being very polite to my father when the, (laughs) the West Point soccer coach invited me for an official visit as a part of a recruiting campaign. And that's kind of when I think it all tangibly started for me was when I went for a visit to be polite to my father. And I ended up absolutely loving it. And it really just is a special place. And I saw just how amazing the people were that were attending the school and what they were learning. And it was just so different from any other academic institution that I just thought this was the time to get involved. And ever since then, I've been really involved with protecting the world and have been super passionate about it and surrounding myself with people who feel the same way. I think a lot of our generation is that way subconsciously, especially given the events from September 11th. I think a lot of my generation was old enough to understand what it felt like to want to protect the freedom of our world and to protect the people that care about that. So that's where the journey started. And ever since, it's just been a whirlwind of really fun opportunities. Well, I can't wait to get into those, but I want to kind of talk about your experience at West Point. So what was it like being a female cadet at West Point? And are there myths you'd like to bust for women considering military service? Yeah, that's kind of funny that you bring up the myth busters thing. I think actually when I was uh, at West Point on the soccer team, 
literally one of our recruiting campaigns was Mythbusters for specifically women at West Point. Oh, everything wow. from <laughs> everything from you don't have to cut your hair when you get there. You can keep you can keep your hair as long as you'd like to what is it like? Am I going to have to live on post my entire life at West Point? The answer is no to a lot of just mythbuster type of things. But being a woman at West Point was overall wonderful experience for me. I really felt like I was in this massive fraternity of people of shared values. And when I say fraternity, I mean it specifically in a way where it was predominantly men, but it really felt like a sisterhood as well, um, especially with the soccer team. When I was there, it was one in every eight cadets were women. So especially being an engineer student, there were definitely moments where I was the only woman, but honestly, it didn't really feel that way. I really felt like I was just one of the group and I was in a big family and I had a lot of brothers and sisters around me. And it was just a wonderful experience of just, again, a values-based community of men and women serving together and looking forward to that next step after graduation. So did you know when you first entered West Point or was it something that you learned while being there that engineering was something you wanted to do? Yeah, it's funny. I think I mentioned earlier that I never thought I would be here. Well, I never thought I was going to be an engineer either. (laughs) I (laughs) remember when I was in middle school, I loved math because it was frankly the only thing I was really okay at. I was not good at English. Um, I, and I don't even know if that was grammatical, but I just said, honestly, I uh, really just loved numbers because they made sense to me. I could easily relate to them. And so I thought I'm going to be a math degree and I'm going to just follow that through. Come two years later after starting at West Point and starting to write theorems, I was immediately turned off to it and really enjoyed the applied side. And that's when I switched over to engineering. It was a great transition because I really felt like I was solving real world problems with numbers and being at the intersection of how numbers can solve real world problems has been just a real big passion of mine. And so that's why I went into the systems engineering department there. So I I definitely have questions around how numbers solve real world problems a little bit later, but I'm wondering, you know, you're at West Point and you're ready to graduate and you have to pick a service, correct? Is that what, what's the next step? You're graduating and, you know, where do you go? Yeah. So for those of you that are not familiar with West Point and how it works, and I still think this is how things work today, but choosing your branch is a huge deal. It's probably one of the most defining moments of your military career. And it all starts a year before you graduate or specifically months before you graduate. There's a whole ceremony where all of the uh, firsties, otherwise known as seniors at West Point, sit in a big auditorium and are each given an envelope that has their branch inside. And on branch night, I remember opening my envelope and I was praying and praying for my branch. And I remember opening it up and seeing a castle which is the sign for the engineer corps in the army. And that was the start of my engineering career in the military. And um, it's just been a really fun journey ever since. So you leave West Point and you go into the army. Where were you uh, in the army, in the engineer corps? Like, what were you doing? Yeah. So the other big part of starting your journey after West Point is choosing not only your branch, but also your post. And there's a whole ceremony with that too. And it's actually quite competitive. Rather than sitting in an auditorium and getting handed an envelope, you actually sit in a room 
with all of your fellow cadets who are going into the same branch as you. And you literally have a wall that shows each post that you could potentially go to. And one by one, based on merit, people go up to the wall and pull off the post that they want. So if you're the lowest ranking cadet in the engineer branch, you're left with whatever people didn't want. (laughs) And so that's also a stressful night because you're trying to war game who wants what. Literally, people are making spreadsheets to try to figure out where they might be going for the next three years of their life. And I remember just, I really wanted to go to Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg, North Carolina is the heart of combat. It's the heart of rapid deployments. It's a really special place. And it's actually where my father started his army career. He was in the 82nd Airborne Division as a paratrooper infantryman. And I just wanted to share that with him. And so come that night, I was lucky enough to pull off the wall of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I just couldn't wait to be a paratrooper, to play with explosives, to go deploy and protect the country. And I just couldn't wait. So lo and behold, I, you know, pack my bags. I go to Fort Bragg after engineer training and airborne school. I've got my wings. I'm ready. And I show up to go to a combat engineering unit. And that is not what I am assigned. I am assigned... a geospatial engineer unit. And I'm thinking, are you serious? Out of all of the combat units here at Fort Bragg, I am getting a geospatial unit that's not qualified. I was beyond upset. And I did everything I could to try to get out of that unit. I tried to talk to every battalion commander. I even talked to a brigade commander and said, I really, really want combat experience. But the cards just weren't in favor for me to leave. And so I was quote unquote, stuck with this geospatial unit. A couple of months later, after taking on that geospatial platoon, I fell in love with it. The soldiers were incredible. The intersection of data with solving real world problems, again, going back to that, was a blast. And we got to support some amazing missions. And I really enjoyed it. And I still think about the soldiers I worked with almost every day. It was great. Oh, that's wonderful. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the work in the geospatial unit, like what it actually looked like. And what were the missions you were serving? How were you using geospatial data towards serving some type of end? Absolutely. I think a lot of people, when they think about the Army engineers, they think about the pillars of construction and combat and all of these really amazing things engineers do, but often they do forget about the geospatial pillar of engineering. And what we do essentially is we take data, different data sources, and manage them and fuse them and analyze them in order to create everything from foundational maps that people can use when they're going into an area they might not be familiar with to insights on key areas of terrain that we can use in order to do Everything from humanitarian assistance to um, finding the right place to go to when we would deploy and enter a combat zone or an area like that. And so specifically, um, people are, you know, the, the, the world of geospatial analysis is very much a commercial and a defense technology or workforce or whatever you want to think of it as. And specifically, Say we wanted to look at where we would want to put displacement camps in West Africa during the Ebola crisis. That was something that we worked really hard on in the military when all of that was happening. And an example of how we would create some analysis 
in order to support that mission would be looking at the core infrastructure. Where are the hospitals? Where are the water sources? What does the slope look like? What does the vegetation look like? Taking a layer of data associated with all of those things, creating a geospatial model and a geographic information system, a GIS, and outputting key areas that would be useful to help those in need is something that we would do. So that's a tactical uh, insight into how we would use data to help others. And it's still a, a wonderful field that I think a lot of people are interested in. Wow, that's a great example. Thank you for sharing that with us. So, you know, while you were in the Army, you also served as a military social aide at the White House. Can you share with us a story or two that you'll never forget about your time doing that? Absolutely. I look so fondly back on the times working as a military social aid. And it's actually a program a lot of people just don't know about. It's almost like a hidden secret in the military service that if you're stationed in the Washington, D.C. area, that you could part time on top of your day job, be supporting East Wing Protocol for really important events like Medal of Honor ceremonies or state dinners, or the nuclear security summit, or other things that are important for the president to build important relationships with others. And so it's really hard to choose one or two stories. I think that one story that I just will never forget is supporting a Medal of Freedom ceremony that President Obama put on. And that one was amazing, because I'll never forget we were sitting in a room, getting ready and going over our line by line to support the ceremony. And Tom Hanks walked in. <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness. I, I think he walked into the wrong room or something, or I don't know what exactly happened, but we were all standing there and we, we all thought we need to get out of here and make sure that we are catering to our VIPs accordingly. And we don't want to be seen because we're obviously operational protocol support. And he said, no, 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 stay in here. I, I want to chat with you. And it was really impressive because he was looking at specifically my uniform and he knew every single ribbon, medal of the army insignia, which makes sense because he has starred in so many military films. Right. He, knew, right. he knew the castle was engineered. He knew the wings were airborne. And it was really fascinating and amazing. It just gave a lot of credibility to actors in those movies that they really study <laughs> what they're doing. Uh, so things like that, that were super fun and escorting VIPs like him to going to the nuclear security summit and escorting world leaders um, like the secretary of defense of Germany and meeting the um, prime minister of many countries and showing them to the plenary room during a really key meeting with the Obama presidency was just amazing. And I recommend the opportunity to any veteran that is qualified to support that program. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing your stories. So you transitioned out of active duty and you landed at SpaceX. How did you find SpaceX and why did you choose to work there right out of the military? Well, out of yeah. active duty, I should clarify. Sorry. Right. No, absolutely. I remember I didn't initially want to work at SpaceX. One, because I thought there's no way I can be qualified to go somewhere like that. I mean, the minds there are absolutely incredible. The most brilliant people I've ever worked with are at SpaceX. And I still keep in touch with them because they inspire me to challenge myself. And I really thought, you know, I'm leaving the military. I'm not quite sure what I want to do. 
maybe I'll go into consulting and get some exposure to the world and how it works and get some exposure on the business side. And what does it even mean to be in corporate America? And so I actually was speaking with a West Point graduate who was in consulting, but also had just transitioned to SpaceX. And I remember speaking with him and saying, I think I really want to get into consulting. Can you give me advice? And after a few conversations with him, he said, you're not going to want to go into consulting. You're going to want to go to SpaceX. (laughs) And I thought there's no way an innovative company like that would want someone like me. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, if you see value in me, then I would love to be on the team. And so obviously, given some of my background in operations and deployments and working with different types of people, I was lucky enough to get on the team. And I remember I showed up and it's just an inspiring place. The factory floor is incredible. The people are brilliant. And I actually literally almost ran into Elon during my interview (laughs) I thought I'll be lucky if I get a job. And I still did. And I showed up on day one and I'll never forget my boss, um, Becca Lozano, who is amazing. I asked her, I said, what am I going to be working on? She said, you're going to be working on landing legs. I didn't know anything about landing legs. I didn't know anything about (laughs) rockets. And I just thought, okay, I will do my very best to do whatever you think I need to, to support this. And it was actually a really cool job because as many are aware, Elon's vision of SpaceX and just for the broader space industry and humanity is to treat space like like the air domain in a way where why aren't we using rockets the way we use aircraft? Why aren't we able to reuse rockets? These multi-million dollar amazing things why were we originally just letting them fall into the ocean? And so his dream was, okay, we've been able to land a rocket. We've been able to reuse it a couple of times. Let's disrupt that and build on that and allow a rocket to land 10 times and be be reused 10 times. And so it was really exciting to be a part of the landing leg upgrade to enable the fulfillment of that mission. And I mean, we literally just saw in the news that we were able to have a reusable rocket send astronauts to the ISS. And it's just really exciting that we're revolutionizing access to space. And that will, of course, um, from a broader perspective, empower humanity to become something much more than a species on Earth. And it's just, it's a really cool vision. And I love uh, how it's impacting the world and how we see it. That sounds really exciting. And it's so interesting when you say Elon, he just, you know, his name rings just like Tom Hanks, like he's a celebrity <laughs> when you say it, it's really funny to me. So I'd love to talk a little, a little about what you're doing now. So could you share with us about a little bit about Hawkeye 360 and what you're doing for them? And also you are still an army reservist and you serve at the defense innovation unit. So could you talk a little bit about that as well? Definitely. So um, I think that generally, at least in my career, my purpose has always been to be a part of protecting the world and helping protect the world. And obviously, the Army was a really big part of that. SpaceX is a huge part of that. And I really wanted to continue to be a part of that in my career, especially as I wanted to move back to the East Coast and be closer to family, it was going to be a challenge to really find the right fit, especially when comparing 
to a place like SpaceX that was fulfilling the mission. We were moving fast. We were revolutionizing the world. And it was hard to find the right fit until I met with the folks at Hawkeye 360. And their mission is to protect the world by using geospatial data derived from RF. um, And much more than that. I mean, there's much more to it than that. They have these three satellites that are literally the size of a, a microwave orbiting the earth and detecting emissions on the earth that can be created into insights that can help people better understand the environment that they care about, um, whether it's maritime domain operations or whether it's keeping people safe um, on land and making sure that the RF environment is representing the way that things should be operating. There's so many use cases that I could go into because I love working with that technology, but Obviously, it really is about this new technology and it's first to market and it's exciting and people um, enjoy working with it. And we're continuing to build out our constellation of these clusters of three satellites. And it's kind of fun, actually. My last launch at SpaceX was the launch that sent the Hawkeye 360 uh, Pathfinder satellites into orbit. So it was kind of cool to transition that way and just be a part of this broader ecosystem of keeping the world a safe place and um, being a part of the ecosystem. And I feel like I've said ecosystem three times now, but being a part of this world of these startups that are really trying to move quickly and keep us at a competitive advantage in protecting the freedom of the world has been really fun. And that's why working at the Defense Innovation Unit is really exciting because we get to work with these commercial companies that have this private investment and use them for defense applications as well. And building that bridge specifically between the civilian world, the commercial world, and the defense world and the intelligence world is extremely important. It's really fun to be at the heart of that. Man, your career has been so exciting. So I'm wondering, how have your goals and priorities changed as you've moved into your mid-career? And what has worked for you in navigating that transformative period of life? Yeah, it's really interesting. What's fun about life is that as soon as you think you've kind of figured it out, you haven't. And you've got to figure out the next thing. And that's what makes it fun. And that's, I feel like, I feel like mid-career is a really big transition for a lot of people where you've been living your whole life trying to serve your parents and make them happy, or you're in high school and you're trying to get the best grades and you're trying to get to college. And then you go into this world where you don't really know exactly what right looks like. You just know that you want to help. And Being mid-career is interesting because you're transitioning from this mode where you have your head down and you are just doing everything you possibly can to fulfill the needs in front of you at your company or wherever it is. And then you kind of pick your head up and realize, wait, there's, there's so much I could be influencing and I can be helping with. And there's so many options. How do I determine how I maneuver that? And it can be really overwhelming. But I think just staying true to what your purpose is and what you think your value is to that purpose is extremely helpful for that and having almost that North Star. But above all of that, having your core community that pushes you through that, despite whatever is going on around you professionally or otherwise, has been really helpful for me as I navigate things mid-career. So I've heard you say that people are the most complex system, which might surprise some of our listeners coming (laughs) from an engineer. So can you explain what you mean by that and why that idea is meaningful to you? Yeah, it's kind of funny. 
we were talking about this earlier, how numbers always resonated with me much more than the more intangible things and the things that are sometimes really hard to wrap your head around. And I was inspired by the applications of numbers and engineering with things like SpaceX and with things like Hawkeye 360, where you're building these amazing pieces of technology that ultimately enable us to protect the world. And it all kind of came full circle to me when just recently, Hawkeye 360, we launched our cluster two satellites. And we actually, my fiance, myself, and my mother, we went down to Cape Canaveral to watch the launch. And it was the first time the two of them had ever seen a live launch before. And I remember sitting there with them, watching the rocket go up and seeing the satellites theoretically deploy on, you know, on video while it's all happening. And I remember just thinking to myself and reflecting on all of the moments where we were able to make that technology happen. I had realized sitting alongside my mom and my fiance that at the end of the day, it was really the people and how they operated together and how they brought their minds together that enabled this amazing thing to happen. And now I think becoming more mature and understanding that not everything's about results and numbers, and it's ultimately about the teams behind those things, that has been the most complex problem to solve is how do you engineer a team and not just a team of people that are working on a specific piece of technology, but even more broadly speaking, how does private, how does the private sector work with the government? How does the private sector work with the government to work with our allies? And just broader and broader, this complex system of people and teams and how they work together to make the world a safer place has been really complex. And I think we need more systems engineering thinking around that problem. I love that. I feel like it's just a wonderful way of thinking and beautifully put. So thank you. You know, I've been very lucky to watch you build and grow an organization completely outside your day job. And that organization is called the Command Purpose Foundation. Can you share with us the story of why you formed that organization and why it's important to you? Well, I should also thank you for helping build this organization. I think it's really important that I say that along with many other people who are behind this organization. There are just so many that have contributed to this mission that specifically is really personal for me. And there's so many, I wish I could say everyone that has helped with this, but it's really hard to, uh, especially on a limited time with something like this podcast with you. But really what I've come to realize is that we are not living in the days of the world war where the relationship between the civilian sector and the military was so tight knit. I mean, you knew, you always knew someone that was going to war or you knew someone that was in the military. And today we just don't have that. The separation between the military and the civilian world is vast. And that connection is not nearly as strong as it used to be. But I really do believe that in order for us to have a really strong um, national security, talking about people as a complex system or teams as a complex system, the connection and understanding of the experience of the military, along with the connection and understanding of the experience of those in the civilian world who have not served but are serving in different ways, is so important. And, and specifically with me, as I 
veteran woman, I have personally experienced the challenge of compelling others of how I can add value to whatever mission we're working on and vice versa. It goes both ways. And so the Command Purpose Foundation is meant to nourish that relationship and really empower specifically veteran women to come together with their allies to be pillars in society and make the world a better place with those who want to connect with them. And it's just been a really fun journey. It was founded last year and it's grown much quicker than uh, Katie, my co-founder and I could ever expect. And it's just really exciting to see it grow and people understand it and want to be a part of it. Well, it has been an absolute honor to support you and the Command Purpose Foundation um, in your journey. It's honestly been an honor. As you know, we end each episode with asking the same question. And we often I'm so hear, nervous about this. <laughs> I know. We often hear this is the most difficult question to answer. So if you could give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Okay. So I will admit I should have done some research before this because I don't know if this one's taken and if it is, please let me know. And I will try to pivot in the moment, but I have thought about it. And by the way, I talked with my family and friends about it because I was so nervous about this moment, <laughs> um, but I wanted to choose Ruby. That's not taken, is it? No. Oh, <laughs> and I know this has multiple meetings. So please tell our audience. All right. So the reason I chose Ruby is because one, it's my birthstone. Two, it is the center stone on my engagement ring. And three, I think what's really cool about rubies is that they are almost every single ruby has a flaw, yet they are still beautiful and people admire them and people um, value them. And I think all of us are kind of like a ruby. And I really want to relate to everyone. And I think everyone is like that. What's also really cool about rubies is that they are valued by almost every culture as a sign of protection. And that has always been my mission is to try to help protect the world. They are seen as a sign of passion and courage. And I just hope that I can always have that in my career, specifically with the defense and intelligence community. And I think that's probably the, the three big reasons why I chose Ruby. I'm surprised it wasn't, it wasn't chosen already. <laughs> no, and it's beautiful and it's just fitting. I absolutely love it. That is just perfect. Erin, this has been wonderful. Um, first and foremost, on behalf of myself, my team, and, and, and America, quite frankly, thank you for your service. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. I hope you had a little fun. And until next time, thank you again. Thanks, Megan, for having me. This was such a privilege. And I'm really, really excited to continue to see what Iron Butterfly does. I think what you're doing is amazing. Thank you. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, 
email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.